And so we're exploring the Psalms. The Psalm we're going to be exploring is Psalm 25. It, it means a great deal to me because I think it appreciates the realities of life in a, in a pretty significant way. And what we're going to see here is that um, it, it demonstrates two different realities, two tension points, if you will. One of them, I don't think we're going to, it's going to require too much convincing. One of them, Psalm 25, speaks of the reality that life weighs us down. I don't think any of us need to be convinced of that. Life does weigh us down. Has a way, burdens, concerns, uh, have a way of, of weighing on us. And that is certainly true. On the other hand, what's also true is that God promises to lift us up. Life might weigh us down, but God promises to lift us up. And here's the reality. And this is good for us to know if we're in the initial stages of exploring what life with God might look like. But some of us who have been walking with him for some time, we know that might be true. Life weighs us down, God lifts us up. But you know what? Most of the time, it's not to say it doesn't happen, but most of the time, that lifting up isn't immediate. I mean, we would want it to be, but it isn't usually. It's usually a, sta- a space in between. There's a space in between life weighing us down and God lifting us up. And in that space, well, a couple things start to happen. See, we start to recognize that uh, tension starts to build. And that tension becomes uncertainty. And that uncertainty, it requires something of us. It requires us to patiently hold on to his promise of lifting us up. That's difficult. It's difficult for in that tension, uh, I've come to recognize that God loves to meet us there because he longs to do something far greater than the concern that is weighing us down. Um, Now, I got to be honest with you. I personally, I don't do that well with uncertainty. I don't know about you, but uncertainty has a way with me if I let it. See, it could become, it starts out as a legitimate concern. If you've ever been there. But if that concern becomes, it has its way with me, and it, it, it becomes the focal point of my mind, that concern becomes a worry. And that worry, as I continue to meditate on it, or as we, we dwell on it, you know, that worry transforms into something a little bit stronger, transforms into anxiety. And anxiety starts to fill our thoughts and our emotions, and it has its way with our moods and the way we interpret everything that's going on around us. Not just our concern, but now everything starts to get swallowed up into this anxiety. And anxiety, if we don't resist it, ends up, you know what happens? It turns into fear. Legitimate fear. And fear becomes the blanket we wear. It's like clothing. And a number of things can happen there. Many times, by the way, it's out of that place we make decisions we later regret. But more than anything, what usually can happen is that fear, it turns into something else. It turns into paralysis. Because we are now at the place where we don't see a way forward. And we have no real hope to speak of. And so we choose oftentimes to do nothing. And... You know, I've discovered this not just in my own life, but I've discovered this in, in, in just because of the nature of what I get to do. 
because I'm a pastor, I have found myself in conversations many times. And it really doesn't matter the setting. I could be in an Uber. I could be at the barbershop. I could be at a coffee house, at a restaurant, shopping for something. I'd be walking down the street and bump into somebody and start talking. And this is happens where we'll start to get to know each other. We'll start talking, kind of go through the initial pleasantries. And all of a sudden, they'll ask what I do. And at that point, when they ask what I do, a fork in the road appears. They don't know it, but that's what happens. Because I tell them I'm a pastor. And at that moment, I could see it within their minds. A decision is being made. <laughs> they discover I'm a pastor. And then some, some choose to say, you know what? In their minds, they come to this conclusion. I don't know if I've ever met one of you um, <laughs> that I've liked. And so, you know, it's been nice knowing you, you know? It was great to hear your name and hear a little bit about what you do, but here's your coffee. I'll see you later, right? It'll be that, or it'll be the most awkward silent Uber ride from that point forward, you know? The music gets turned up, you know? It's like, just get there fast enough. That happens. Now, that's the minority, I have to say. The majority of the times, what usually happens is something, something of a, a, a sense of safety comes over them. And they discover I'm a pastor, and it really doesn't matter what season of life people are in. This has happened to me, it's happened to me this week at an in and out <laughs> Where I'm sitting next to somebody, they discover I'm a pastor, all of a sudden, we're talking life. It gets real. All, it, this is what happens. So, I'm seeing this girl. And, uh, you know, I really like her. But I want to know, how do you know she's the right one? You're a pastor, right? And I'm thinking, we just met, right? Oh, that'll happen. Or, or, you know what? I've been at this job. I've been at this job for several years now. And man, when I started, I was really excited. But then, you know what? I started to discover stuff. Man, I don't know. I don't really like it anymore. What do you, what do you think I should do? You know, I got... I got several opportunities. Man, I'm so glad I met you, actually, because I wanted to talk to somebody about this. And there are a couple options out there for me. What do you think I should do? What, what road do you think I should take? And if time allows, and they feel safe enough, we'll, we'll go to deeper places. You know, my marriage is in a pretty tough spot. You know, so-and-so did this. What do you think I should do? Or I did this. What do you think I should do? And I'll tell you, whether it's my own concern that warps itself into fear or other people's concerns, I've, I've come to understand there's something of a common denominator. And the common denominator is at the risk of, of reducing it to this, but I have come to this discovery or at least understanding that we all long for direction. We all want clarity. Every single one of us wants answers and relief. And we desire immediate clarity. That is what our desire is. What, whatever season of life we're in, whatever challenge we're facing, our, what we whittle it down to is really what I'm looking for is give me guidance to make the best decision possible. You know what that means? The best decision possible? It means the decision that would have the lowest amount of risk and the highest amount of result. That's, that's the best decision possible. Can you give me that? 
Because you're a pastor, right? Right? You could do that. Like you could talk to him. He'll make it all clear, right? That's how it works. I, I got to say, anyone who would promise that, anyone who would promise that would have to completely ignore how nuanced and complex this life actually is. And how much of a reality it is that there is far more gray than black and white. The reality is that we are faced with uncertainty and risk every day of our lives. And this is personally why I have come to truly love the scriptures. Truly. And especially the Psalms. Because they, if, I don't know how else to put it, they're honest and real. They don't hide how difficult this life is. And yet, they're able to hold intention. The promise that God is able to meet us, lift us, and strengthen us. In that place of uncertainty, I think many times what we will see is that that is the place where we discover far more about ourselves and far more about God than we ever would in the path that has zero risk and everything is clearly laid out for us. And that is the gift. That is the gift of discovering that he will lift us up. Now, David is a man who is known as a man after God's own heart. And he was a man who experienced uncertainty at high levels and yet declared trust in God in an unwavering fashion. Both were true. And if you see this, we'll open up the handout and we'll just walk through Psalm 25 together. And we're told here, this is a psalm, by the way, written from a man who is desperately clinging to God in the midst of his circumstances. And we're told in verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. David is coming to plea for himself. Why? Because he feels surrounded by people in a situation in which he feels they're waiting for him to fail so they could rejoice. And it might not be the case for us that there are actual people waiting for our failure, but many times our situations might feel like they are mocking us, waiting for us, longing to rejoice over our failure and demise. And we're told, he continues, he says in verse 4, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. I need guidance. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. I'm coming to you for guidance and help. Show me. Remember your mercy, O Lord, your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Ah, David. David, in just seven short verses, actually ends up capturing the full scope of what it looks like to be fully human and a man of faith or a person of faith. How? 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 Well, what we see here is, what does he do? He, first, he draws near to God, and he lifts himself up to God, and he says, God, I'm coming near to you. I trust in you. I know you exist. 
And you know what the sense happens? It's, it's almost like what we're seeing is an internal dialogue. Because as he comes to God asking for guidance, it's almost as if there's a whisper within that starts to creep up. And whisper might sound something like, David, have you forgotten what you did? Don't you remember? Don't you know you, I mean, David, you're asking God for guidance. You really think you deserve it? You think, you think he doesn't know? Your youth? The times you rebelled? The times you did what was wrong? And you knew it? Come on, man. You know yourself better than anyone. See, it's easy to hide from others. It's hard to hide from ourselves. And in the midst of that, in the midst of feeling the, the bubbling up of his shame and his guilt, of knowing his own contradiction and knowing he doesn't deserve, what does he do? He turns to God and he says, no, God, listen, remember your mercy. Remember your committed love, that steadfast love. Remember not my sins or my transgressions, but your steadfast love. Remember me. I ask you for guidance and I come to you, not because I earn it, but because you are that good. You're that good. That's what I've discovered about you. Your goodness is greater than my contradictions and weaknesses. It's greater than my guilt and shame. In fact, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, look, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, look at this. He instructs sinners in the way. This is so against what we might expect. What we might expect is good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he locks those who are not outside. He says, no, no, no. Those who recognize their own flaws and weaknesses, he instructs them. He leads the humble. Here it is. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord, they are committed love, steadfast love, and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. That is what he has revealed about himself. For your name's sake, O Lord, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. I don't deserve it, but because you're that good, I call on your goodness to prevail over my lack of deserving it. I'll tell you what. Who is the man who fears the Lord? That word fear, by the way, it's not panic. It's awestruck. It's recognizing someone greater than one is in their presence. Visually, it is the image of being caused to voluntarily lower one's neck in deference because it's an admission. You're far greater than I. He says, who is the person who does that? Uh, him will he instruct. God will instruct him in the way that he should choose. His soul, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. True security will be found. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, who have reverence of him and makes known to them his covenant, his relational commitment. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. This is what he is saying. The one who has reverence for God will become teachable. And the one who is teachable by him will be the one who is rescued. He will be lifted out of the net. He will be lifted. So turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. You hear the pain. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. And forgive all my sins. 
Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. And I ask not just for myself but for my people. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The psalm, the psalm, the reason I personally love it so much is because it doesn't land in a nice tidy bow where everything's cleaned up and clarified and perfect. It lands in a point of tension. There is very little resolution here. It's also a psalm, if we could put it this way, in which what we see is a man who is holding onto the promise of God, and at the same time, he's not hiding how he truly feels. I'm lonely. I'm afflicted. I'm distressed. You will rescue me. You are steadfast. You are merciful. God, I'm surrounded, but you won't let me be put to shame. God, I feel guilty, but you will forgive me. God, I don't deserve it, but you love to instruct those who fear you. You see, I think this is actually a very real picture of what life with God looks like. Both are present in the space in between. Life may weigh us down. He might lift us up. What it looks like in between is to live in a place where we don't ignore one or the other. But he meets us right there. He wants to do something far greater than the concern that brought us there. See, I think David ends up modeling for us a couple things as we might consider what we might be walking through right now. One of the things I think David models is what it might look like for us to deal with something far greater than the concern that weighs on us. See, only the grace of God can lift the weight of shame. We must, listen, shame Shame is something every single one of us will need to deal with in some way, shape, or form. None of us are um, absolved from this. I wish I could tell you that there was a way, but there isn't. And here's the deal. Some of us may or may not know this, but guilt, guilt is something a little bit different. Guilt is the internal prompt that we have done something that requires correction. It's almost like you could think of it this way. Guilt is the internal compass that tells us we're off track and we need to get back onto true north. That's guilt. Guilt tells us, um, listen, we have done something wrong and we need to do something right. You know how we dissipate guilt? Right behavior. That's how guilt has its, uh, leaves us. It is meant, it's, it's like a, a buffer on our conscience, meant to bring us back into the center of the lane. And it, the more consistently we remain in the center of the lane, guilt starts to leave. It's, it's true. But shame is actually altogether different. Because if guilt tells us our behavior needs to be addressed, shame tells us that we are inherently unworthy of love or of belonging. That is what shame tells us. That we are unworthy of love or of belonging. And here's the deal. If guilt can be addressed with right behavior, uh, how, how do I say this? Uh, no amount of behavioral change will ever convince us that we are worthy of love and of belonging. No amount of right behavior will ever convince us that we are worthy of another's love or belonging. And so if we try to do that, 
we will consistently find ourselves missing the mark and finding ourselves rather frustrated and inevitably discouraged and feeling like this whole thing, this whole faith thing, maybe I'm not cut out for it. This is why it's so important. David was not dishonest about his sense of shame and guilt, but he threw himself on the mercy of God. He threw himself on the love of God and asked God for forgiveness. Now, if David was able to do that based on what he knew about God, we are able to do that based on something far greater. And his name is Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who takes our shame upon himself. He is the one who is able to lift our shame off of our soul. We might think, how, how is that even possible? How is it possible he could take my shame off of me and put it onto himself? Well, my brother-in-law, he lives in Brooklyn with his wife, and my wife and I try to make our way out there as much as we can to visit them. And whenever we're out there, I like to explore throughout New York and enjoy good food and all that there is in New York. One of the things that I've discovered, at least on that side, I haven't discovered too, off, too much here, are those old-time elevators. You ever been in one of those? Those elevators that you get in, in like, it's an accordion door. It feels like you're getting into a prison cell, right? And it latches, and you feel a little claustrophobic. And there's a whole bunch of noises that are happening, but there's no movement, right? It's like, it's rickety as you're moving up. It's like everything's shaking. And I've, I, I've been in one of these, and what I've seen is a counterweight starts to come down. And as the counterweight comes down, we're going up. And this counterweight, it has to be greater than what is in the elevator. That counterweight comes down, the elevator goes up. And I have to believe this is something of what Paul was telling the Corinthians when he told them this. Listen, Jesus, Jesus is that counterweight. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. I asked him to put this up there. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That is to say, the man who was perfect who is greater than any other human being on the face of the earth, was a man who descended. And he came down and became a man who became sin, the very source of our shame. So that any who believe in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be lifted up to be right with God. This is, this is an incredible thing then when we get into his elevator and we say, I believe in you and I feel guilty and ashamed and I feel unworthy of even coming to you, of asking you for help, you will lift me up because you descended that I might ascend. You lowered yourself and in lowering yourself, you lifted me up. This, ah, I can't explain how huge this is because many times we may start there. We may start in the place of thinking that um, knowing this is all based on the grace of God. We may start there, but you know what happens? Is we can easily transfer. We might start saying, Lord, it's not that I deserve it. It's that you, you are so good. Your grace has uh, lifted me up. And over time, we might start to think, now that I'm behaving right, I come to you. I, I used to come to you because of your goodness. Now I come to you because of my behavior. And now I feel entitled. And now I feel like you owe me. Or if we fail, now I can't come to you anymore. 
And now, though I want your guidance, I can't ask you for it because I feel rejected because of my own shame. And what's required is we have to understand this. It wasn't meant to simply begin there. That is the life we are asked, invited into. The life where, yes, shame might come, guilt might come. His promise is to lift it over and over and over. And I come to you, God, not because I deserve it, but because you long to give me guidance. And my shame need not get in the way. He doesn't just lift our shame. You know what he also lifts? He is able. Listen, God lifts the weight of anxiety so we can address our concerns. He lifts the weight of our anxiety so we can actually address our concerns. This is where David was a man who practiced the ability to step through many points of anxiety and over and over. You know what he did? It's not like he didn't do anything. All we need to do is read the book of 1 Samuel to recognize David was a man of action. He was a man who made decisions, who made calls, who stepped forward, who stepped into risk and out of risk. He really did. He navigated. And he didn't, he didn't do it perfectly. Boy, did he fail sometimes. But you know what he did primarily? Is he developed the habit of asking God to lift his distresses, to lift his anxiety. Because he knew no amount of action is able to remove that. Only God can. This is, by the way, why Paul encouraged the Philippians by telling them, listen, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests made known to God. Make your requests made known to God. What are those requests? Make them known to God. You know what? The peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard our heart and our mind. And here's the deal. A decision made out of a place of anxiety, it's going to be far different than a decision made out of a place of peace. What happens is once anxiety is lifted, we now regain the ability to make rational, wise decisions. And here's the deal. Faith with God does not exclude the capacity to think things through and to exercise wisdom and prudence and to be able to consider the different elements at play. But, but we are not asking for a risk-free situation. What we are asking is, God, will you give me the peace of your assurance that you're with me in the midst of this risk? Will you give me the peace of your assurance that your steadfast love is here? I don't need to worry about my shame. You see, you're not against me, you're for me. And your grace for my life is greater than my anxiety. And now that I'm settled, knowing that you're with me, now I ask you to help me make the best decision possible. Now that I'm in my right mind, now I can move forward. Now I can address this. But first I need to get to that place of your peace guarding my heart and my mind. Acting out of peace is always going to lift us farther than acting out of panic. Always. If that's true, David reminds us to show us, you know what? The fog of confusion, here's the deal. The fog of confusion is lifted as we walk in his ways. That is, as we apply what we already know about him. It is in that place. Many times in this life, what we want 
Listen, what we want are answers. He offers himself. We want a clean-cut path. He offers courage to trailblaze. We want clear markings. He offers clear presence. We want our concern addressed. He wants our character built. And in that in-between is where he is able. Listen, building doesn't happen without application. It doesn't happen without us being tested and training and doing what we already know to be true. After, After David cried out to God and let him know of his loneliness, of his anxiety, his distress, and his guilt. You know where he lands? He lands in verse 21 and he says what? May integrity and uprightness preserve me. It's another way of saying, one thing I will not abandon, which is what we are so tempted to do when we're anxious, when we're fearful, when we're in panic mode. We abandon what we know to be true and right about God. And if that's the case, I would love to encourage you to just think about this. What would it look like for us to return to integrity? What would it look like for us to move one step in the direction of what is right in his eyes? David says, you know what? I I know I don't see everything, but as I move in the place of what I know to be consistent with you, God, you you will lift the fog. You will show me the way. You will prove your faithfulness. You will guide my steps. Because you are with me. You are with me. It was, um, it was two years ago around there. My wife and I uh, had something happen to us that has never happened to us before. Um, at the time, now we have a dog and a cat. And back then we had a cat. Well, she has a cat. Um, and we live in a home where uh, we have upstairs, you know, and then um, we have a garage and there's an in-law unit in the back of the house that we share with, with a neighbor and we share the garage and there's, a, there's steps that go from the garage up into the hallway right next to our bedroom. And that door has a chain on it. Now, if you try to open it and the chain's on it, it'll slam against the chain and it'll slam back shut. And it was around two in the morning where that door was attempted to be opened it knocked against the chain and it closed. It was one of those noises that was unmistakable. And so it woke me up. It was pretty loud. I thought, man, maybe that was a dream. I hope that was a dream. And so I nudge my wife and I go, hey, honey, did you? And she, before I finish, she goes, yes. I said, okay, it wasn't a dream. So I thought, wow, okay. So when we sit there, we're just waiting and listening trying to figure out what's going on and don't hear anything. And so I lean forward to the edge of our bed to see what's going on. Maybe there's a light or something. And what we see is our cat, or what I see is our cat, just sitting there looking at the door, growling, which I didn't know cats could do. <laughs> but I thought, clearly it's not a good sign. So then I thought, you know what? If, if somebody's actually stealing stuff from our garage, there's going to be a car out front. And so I made my way around the edges of the of the, of the hallway, into the kitchen, around the edges of the wall, and made my way up to the front, my best version of a ninja. <laughs> and I opened up the curtains and I saw there was a car in the middle of the street in front of our house. There was a couple guys talking. The lights were on, the engine was on. I thought, wow, man, they're stealing. They're robbing my garage. I thought, man, what do I have there? I have books. They're all about God. You know, I have... <laughs> Take the books. 
Take them. You need them. You clearly need them. I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, man, I got to address this. I can't, this can't just be, right? And so, how am I going to do this? And so I started going through scenarios. One scenario, I thought, maybe I'll just go down there and say, hey, guys, hey. Just this person living here. You're good. Take the books. Go. You're fine. No worries. I thought, nope, that won't work out. So I went into the kitchen. I thought, man, I need something to defend myself with. So I got a knife. And I thought, let's think this through. I go down there. I have a knife. I have a gun. It's a bad situation. Okay, maybe, maybe I go down there. I have a knife. They have nothing. I'm a pastor. What, what am I doing here? That's not good. So I, I went back into the bedroom. So I, I'm going to call the cops. I say, honey, I'm going to call the police. She goes, yeah. So, I've never done this. What's your emergency? I think someone broke into our house. Where? Downstairs. How many are living in your house? Me, my wife, and our neighbor and the in-law. Sir, we're sending, we're sending men right now. Do you mind if we break your door down? No. I'll open the door. <laughs> Two minutes. I mean, it was fast. Four patrol cars come, swoop in on our house, run up the front steps. I open the door, and I just point towards the, the door in the hallway. And it was amazing. These big men, big men, earpieces, run into our house, guns drawn, flashlights lit. They step in, they start talking to each other and all this kind of sign stuff. I'm like, man, this is SWAT, you know? Open the door, fearless, just step down, go into the garage. They light it all up. They go, put your hands up. Put your hands up. And I thought, whoa, this is amazing. So I run back. I run down there. And I see our neighbor, this elderly woman. I said, no, she lives here. Um, she goes, Lewis, why? Cops are in the front. They go to the back. They light it all up. They look everywhere. They look for signs of breaking entry. They don't find anything. They, they, they just comb the whole house. They make their way upstairs. And they all leave. And the last one, who was clearly the one kind of making the calls, I said, man, thank you so much. And he shakes my hand. He goes, it's our privilege. Pats me on the back. He says, you're okay. We're going to leave a car at the top of the hill watching things. You're fine. You're safe. I said, thank you. He left. That was amazing. <laughs> Look at my wife. It's like, that just happened. Here's the thing. We, by the way, we, we, we think it was an animal. Raccoon. We called the cops on a raccoon. <laughs> but I was worried. Man, I was anxious. I had my wife. Our neighbor, it's just me. I was fearful. I can tell you, I did nothing. I called for help. And when it was all said and done, I wasn't anxious. 
I wasn't afraid. I wasn't fearful. I called for help. And I don't know if we can understand this fully, but I think this is why Paul said it surpasses understanding. Because when we call him for help, when we're way down, there is something of a force that moves upon us in the spirit. Heaven moves towards those who call on him. And listen, it may not change the situation, but you better believe something far greater than us is present with us. Someone stronger than us. Someone who is more capable than us. Invades our soul. And it is true. Where his light shines, darkness flees. It has no other option. And in those places, when we ask him to lift us up, in that place we discover far more about ourselves and far more about his goodness. He is capable to meet us wherever we might be at. I don't know what situation we're walking through right now, but I can assure you, I can assure you, our shame should not prevent us because he lifts it. He lifts our shame. Our anxiety should not have its way with us. He lifts our anxiety. And our confusion should not dominate us. He will lift it as we move on the courage he gives us and we step forward one step at a time. And oh, to have the experience of calling on him, having him meet us there, and then us walking it out. It's a gift no one can take. It's what molds us. May that be the case for us wherever we might be at. May he lift our soul. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you, you are never intimidated. There's nothing that scares you. Nothing, nothing in our world, nothing in our situation, nothing within our soul. Our shame does not push you away. But you courageously stepped into human history. You took our brokenness upon yourself. You took our situation into your hands, our soul. And you, the God of the universe, you're able to speak peace into our heart and our mind. You're able to demonstrate that you love us and because you love us, we can come before you. You give us security nothing else can ever assure us of. And I pray you give us the courage we need to step one step forward with you. That as we do, the fog would lift and you would have your way with us. We pray for your blessing over our lives, over our soul. May you lift us. In Jesus' name, 